Well, good evening. It is a great privilege, great honor to be here with Andy and Lauren on this special night and to be in this church. Um, I was kind of recounting, I was getting the nickel history of the church, and uh, I didn't realize how many of your pastors have had a profound impact upon my life over the years. Dr. James Baird was a good friend of mine, remains a good friend and a mentor. When I uh, first went to Jackson, Mississippi, he was the first minister to stop by my office and welcome me there and take me out to lunch and tell me how not to get in trouble with a bunch of Southerners, being a, a Connecticut Yankee myself. Uh, and then I followed, actually, John Reed Miller. John Reed Miller was the interim pastor who uh, I succeeded. Uh, of course, Rick Canada was, is a friend and was responsible in great measure to my being called to Christ's Covenant Church. And I've known Chip since, I think, about the year you became the senior pastor here. So 20, 21 years. And I've enjoyed his fellowship. This is a great church. I noticed the... the um, Lifetime members, Mrs. Allen Fleece is out there, and of course, J. Allen Fleece was the president of the Columbia Bible College where I went to seminary and uh, received my Master of Divinity. So it's, it's great to be here, great to be in association with all these great uh, preachers, which leads to the story you want me to tell them. He wants me to tell you this because it's funny, not because it's profound, but I, uh, I was raised a Roman Catholic, very devout Roman Catholic. In fact, in high school, uh, I actually studied to be a priest, and uh, so I had never, um, I had never been in a Protestant church, and and I don't say this to be, uh, I have a hard time keeping a straight face, but in those days I was serious about this because I believed that all Protestants were, you know, going the wrong way on the last day, because they weren't part of the true church. So I I moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and I went to a Catholic church, and and uh, now I see it was the work of the Holy Spirit, I became interested in the Bible. And there was a Bible study at this Catholic church that I went to, and there were, I, there were 14 of us in this study. It was an eight-week study on the life of David. Uh, by the end of the uh, 14 weeks, there were two people, the priest and myself. And at the end of this thing, I said, Pastor, this was fascinating. I said, when are we doing the next Bible study? He said, we're not. I said, well, why not? He said, well, look, no, nobody's interested. I said, well, there's two of us that are interested. No, he said, no, there's one. One of us. <clears throat> so I went to this, uh, went to work. I worked at the International Harvester Company in Memphis at that time. And I told this guy from Carruthersville, Missouri, Wiley Patterson, who was, uh, he, he is the hound of heaven that God sent after me. I said, Wiley, I can't believe that they're not interested in Bible study. So he struck while the iron was hot. He said, oh. He said, at our church, that's all we have is Bible study. I said, yeah. He said, no. We call it expository preaching. It's in the morning, Sunday morning. It's on Wednesday night. It's on Sunday night. The pastor gets up. He says a prayer. We sing some songs that you would know. And then we just get in the Bible, and he explains what's in it. That's all. He said, why don't you come tonight? We're in the book of Revelation. I said, I'm not going to come. He said, you're afraid to come. I said, well, I am. Because if I come, all you will do is talk bad about the Pope and the Catholic Church. He said, we have never said anything from that pulpit about the Catholic Church. So I went. I sat about where Chip's sitting, only right here, right in front of the pulpit, in the front pew. And I'm used to kind of a quiet 
meditative candles and incense kind of service. Well, this guy was an old Cumberland Presbyterian preacher. And he only had one level of volume, and that was loud. And he said, he stepped back from the microphone, he said, I have three things to say tonight. And I'm, it just shocked me. I wanted to say, why are you angry about it? You know. And he said, we're studying the seven churches of Revelation tonight. And as you know, he said, these were real historical churches on an old postal route in Asia Minor. Some of them have epistles in the New Testament written to them, letters that we read even today. And he said, they're also symptomatic of spiritual problems that confront every congregation over time and cause them to need revival and reformation. And he said, but I hold a third and a unique view. They are different denominations in Christendom. And tonight, as we turn to the Church of Thyatira, the great whore of Babylon herself will be talking about the Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> I said, isn't that just like a Protestant to set you up, you know? But, but the amazing thing, that, that what, uh, the moral of this story, if there is one, is it is the power of preaching. I, was, it, I didn't shake hands with that man last, that night because I would have accosted him. And all the way home, the Holy Spirit kept saying to me in this little sports car I had, well, everything he said was true. And so the next Sunday morning, I would go to Mass at 8.30. I'd hop in my car. I'd drive across Memphis. It took me about 15 minutes to get there. I'd get there just in time for the prayer before the sermon, and I'd go up in the very last corner of the balcony and sit there. I'd leave when he was closing prayer so no one would visit with me. And for 18 months in the Gospel of John in the morning and the book of Revelation at night, I was converted under the preaching of the Word. He beat me up with the Bible and beat me into the kingdom of God. And uh, I, I don't intend to beat anybody up or beat anybody down tonight. But I do want to turn to the word of God to give us some encouragement. And that's the first Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, our book, Tertorius, says that when the uh, presbytery is assembled, as they are through this commission, as Dr. Miller said, uh, a, a sermon suitable to the occasion shall be preached by a member of the commission or a visiting brother, which I am a visiting brother from Central Carolina Presbytery. And I've always, Andy, I've always struggled with what a sermon suitable to the occasion is because I'm not supposed to charge you. Someone will do, I think Chip's going to do that later. I'm not supposed to charge the congregation. That'll happen later. So I think the suitable thing to do tonight is to look at what is the heart and life of a gospel minister. Not only uh, Andy, but Elliot and Chip and, and the other ruling elders and teaching elders, all of these men, in, according to biblical language, are pastors. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, tells us uh, what these men are. He begins this little section with these words, This is how one should regard us. Or in a New American Standard, let a man think of us in this way. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, 
that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. My, my, isn't that, isn't that something to have on your resume? Fool for Christ, spectacle to the world, scum of the earth, scrapings of mankind, steward, slave. Few men would put that on their resume, but that is the resume of a gospel minister. I'll tell you how Paul got to this chapter. He loved the Corinthian church. It was a large church, like this church. It was a historic church. It was the first church of Greece, very first church in Achaia, the old word for Greece that was started by the apostles. And it was a very wealthy and sophisticated and gifted church. In fact, in the opening words of this epistle, this letter, he says that uh, they were gifted in all things and had nothing of need. He wrote four letters to them because in addition to all that, they were a troubled church. Four letters of which we have two. We have the second letter that we call 1 Corinthians and the fourth one that we call 2 Corinthians. And as he writes these things to the people, there's something that's obviously true in the Corinthian congregation. Number one, they had problems, historic problems with their ministers. And number two, they had real problems understanding what the ministry was all about. So that the second letter, or the fourth one, 2 Corinthians, actually reads more like a pastoral epistle than it does a letter to the congregation talking about the heart and motive of a pastor. So Paul... As he writes this letter, he says in chapter 1, I hear that there are divisions among you, that you have celebrity pastors around whom in your congregation there are enclaves or cliques of people puffed up against one another. Some say, I'm of Paul. I'm the originator of this church. And I'm of Peter. I come from the apostolic branch of the church, the leader of the apostles. I'm of Apollos, the great Greek order himself, and then there were the purists that said, oh, no, no, I'm of Christ. I'm just a pure Christian. And so he writes to offset these things. He begins in chapter 1, verse 17, and talks about the theology of the cross, how it is foolishness to Greek thinkers and scandalous to the Jews, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved, this thing called the cross. 
talks about his philosophy of ministry. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, his, his mission in life, which was to preach the mysteries of God. His message, to know Christ crucified and nothing else. His manhood, he was, weak, he was with him in weakness and fear and much trembling. His methodology was the spirit and power. His motive, so that their faith would not rest on the power of men, but on the word and the power of the Holy Spirit and of God. He tells them in chapter 3 that the building of a church takes a long, long time and a series of ministers, some who plant, some who water, some who gain the increase, but it's God who gives the fruit. For you're God's building, God's field, God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. He warns them that their divisions can destroy the temple of God And he says perhaps the most straightforward and and maybe harsh thing he says in all of the epistles, do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Be careful, he says, to ministers and people alike, how you handle this thing called the church, the true apple of God's eye, the wife, the love of Christ's life, this temple of the Holy Spirit. And then he comes to chapter 4. Let a person think of us in this manner. That's how it reads in the Greek. And it's a wonderful passage, Andy, for you and for me and all gospel ministers, because there are five word pictures, five Greek words that tell us everything we need to know about a gospel minister's heart and life. He is a slave, a steward, a theater, fool, a martyr. That's what he is. Follow these five word pictures. I'll just briefly highlight each one of these. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. Now servants, quite frankly, loved ones, is kind of a sanitized word for what the Greek really says. He calls himself a huperetes. Huper means under and ereso means to row. I am an under rower, or literally a lower level galley slave. How many people have seen the old movie Ben-Hur? Well, if you saw that movie, you remember that he was a galley slave for a while, and he was on the top row, but there were people underneath him. The more hardened the criminal, the more sickly the slave, the more expendable his life was, the lower he went in the galley slave ranks, and they had some ships that had three different levels. Now, you can imagine what the lower level was like in terms of sanitation and air and things that came down from above. These people were considered nothing whatsoever. They were literally chained to the oars, so if the ship was rammed in the battle as Ben-Hur's ship was, they went down with the ship. You remember when that ship was rammed, the the master of the slaves just deserted and it was left to Ben-Hur to try to unlock their chains and shackles and get them off because... They were simply something that was a thing, like a cylinder, an engine. They were just there to give the ship power and to pull it through battle into the home port. And Paul says that's what a minister is. He's chained to the oars of a church. I don't know if you know this or not, but the earliest symbol we have of the Christian church is not a fish. It's a ship under sail. In the little Catholic church I grew up in in Columbus, Ohio, if you were standing in the pulpit and you looked over here at the east door, 
there was a little mural painted over the door in an archway, and it was a ship under sail, an old uh, Mediterranean uh, Roman kind of ship of the first century. It has on it baskets of bread and a dove like the Holy Spirit taking this bread out in flight. And it reminds us that that was how the church began. All these apostles like Peter and Paul and Apollos getting on a ship and sailing somewhere in the Roman world to take the bread of life to people who knew nothing about one true God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and saving grace. And a minister is chained to that ship. His life, until he's released by the captain himself, is to go up or down with the ship. The ship. He, he, he's rowing for all he's worth to bring that ship home to port and carry as many people as he possibly can in its bowels to our home in heaven. You know, this is an age of celebrity pastors. Either we are one or we'd like to be one or we'd like to have one. And this was an age of celebrity pastors. It wasn't that Paul or Peter or Paulus made themselves celebrity pastors. People make them that. And yet, there's such cognitive dissonance between a celebrity pastor and a lower-level galley slave that it's unimaginable. I, I picked up a Christianity Today magazine a couple months ago, and there's a, there's a picture of a, a well-known guy, a celebrity pastor of our age, and over in big headlines over this thing about one of his recent books is, This Man is Just Waiting to Change Your Life. I think not. I don't think any man has ever changed any man's life. What that should say is, This man is hoping that Jesus Christ will change your life. And so the first thing we remember about our pastors is that they're slaves, slaves of Jesus Christ and of the church. As Paul would say, we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bond slaves for Jesus' sake. And yet in the very act of service, something that the American culture does not admire, but that Jesus Christ holds a high premium on. I stand among you as one who serves, he says. The greatest among you shall be the servant of all. It is the service of our pastors to the church that they have strapped their lives, their families, their future to the church that is something admirable. And only one of five great reasons we need to hold them in great love and affection. Here's the second reason. They are stewards of the mysteries of God. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The word here is oikonomos. It literally means a house manager, but it was one who had the stewardship of two things in a household, the money and the children. And oikonomos was the most important man in the family other than the patris familius, the father of the family. For in the father's absence, he was the one who administered all of the resources and the estate for the sake of the man's wife and children and made sure that all of the male heirs of the inheritance were ready to assume their responsibility as future heads of the family. It was only the best of the servants who were made the trustees, the stewards. And Paul says we are stewards of the mysteries of God. 
It's a word he'll use often in this passage. The mysteries of God, the musterion. Not in the sense that we see a mystery. Something that has clues, and if you're smart enough, you know, Jane and I watch these BBC mystery shows like um, Poirot and Endeavor. You know, I, I got, I'll tell you, let you know a little secret. These guys don't really figure out the clues. Because they all bring it together in the end. You, know, you notice how brilliant they are? We noticed the cigarette was smoked on the wrong side, and the lipstick was not. And I'm thinking, how did you see that in the story? And somehow that's how we think of a mystery. Somebody has to be absolutely brilliant to put it all together. But that's not the meaning of the Greek mood mosterion. The Greek word means something we would not know unless revealed to us by God. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Now, how would we know that? Because nobody was alive when he made the heavens and the earth. What clues are there that God made the heaven and the earth? None. But God told us he did. In fact, all of the great tenets of the Apostles' Creed are all great mysteries. I believe in one God who exists in three persons. Now, how many people would logically think that there was a Father, Son, and a Spirit, but they were one? The last time I added up three, it didn't come to one. But it does in God. Can you explain how a virgin has a baby? How a man is just one person with one personality, and yet he has two complete natures. He's not schizophrenic. There is no division or mixing of the parts, as the old Chalcedonian Creed says. He's just one complete person. Perfect God, perfect man at the same time. How can the Holy Spirit live in us? How can someone's righteousness be given to us? N.T. Wright says, righteousness isn't like a gas that floats across the courtroom. The judge can't take the righteousness of one person and give it to a guilty person. Well, he can if he's God, because that's what he does to save you and me. And how would we know that there's a heaven and an earth and a resurrection? And how can everybody in the world who's part of the church, be brothers and sisters and be in this one great kingdom and have the communion of the saints. How can you look at the church today and say it's one and holy and Catholic and apostolic? But it is. Not because it makes sense to us, but because God says so. These things are counterintuitive to people. That's why we send young men to seminary to learn these things. Not so that they can understand them better than we do and explain. I can't explain the Trinity to you any better than you can to me. But just so we can become immersed in the confidence of God's word and we can represent these things that other people think are foolish. It is required of a steward of God's word, a trustee of these unsearchable riches of Christ, as they're called in another epistle, that he be found faithful. If there's one thing you want from the chief servant of your household who handles your children and your money is that the man must be absolutely 100% dependable. And that's what you want. By the way, that's what you've had. And that's why this church has such a rich heritage and such a vital spirituality because the men you've placed in this pulpit from this man back have been faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. What you don't want is a man getting up in the pulpit and openly thinking out loud about whether he really believes in predestination. 
or whether the righteousness of Christ is really enough to be imputed to a person, or whether there really is a heaven and a hell and not a third option called purgatory. You want this man to be absolutely certain of the treasures he holds in his trust for Jesus Christ and delivers the goods to the children of God so that their inheritance and their future is rich. Sons and daughters of the living God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, Romans tells us. And this pastor is admired and loved because he is faithful. It is required of a steward one thing, that he be found faithful. He then takes a little segue here and he says, look, it's really not that I'm trying to to present myself in a good light so that you think well of me and give me a good grade. I really don't care what you think of me, Paul says. In fact, I don't think a whole lot about myself. Not by this am I acquitted, but I mean that there's a day coming in judgment when God will evaluate me and my ministry, and then we'll know the motives of men's hearts, what I was really after when I became a pastor. And I will get my reward, what I really deserve. I think, I think this might be true, that someday in the future, all the men who had great fame and great popularity and were celebrity pastors of, of big, successful churches, their rewards will be paltry compared to our little brothers across the sea and Africa and China in India who suffer so much for Jesus Christ, but they are faithful, faithful to the Word and to the church. And they are really the real heroes at the end of the story. Paul says, God will judge us. I write these things so that you might not be puffed up in favor one against another, taking sides with Apollos or Peter or Paul or whoever it is, but to see us accurately. And he comes to his third point then. He says, we are a spectacle, a spectacle, a theater to angels and men. Verse 9, we are like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. I call them a theater because that's the Greek word, theatron, from which we get the word theater. It's spelled the same way. T-H-E-A-T-R-O-N. And it means a spectacle, a stage, or a drama. You know, that's really how people in Europe saw the gospel. They didn't call the gospel the gospel because it was good news. They called it gospel because it came from the old German words Gott's Spiel, which means God's story or God's drama or God's play. Gottspiel became an old English Godspell, which became in modern English gospel. Because the gospel is good news, but mostly it's God's story. It's as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians, it was God in the world reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ. It was God acting out this great drama of redemption through the hero of it all, the great protagonist, Jesus Christ, the one true celebrity against whom ministers should never compete. We, Paul says, we're just bit players in this great drama of redemption. But our life is a stage. Because what you see in Andy and in Chip 
and in Elliot and hopefully in me and other ministers is you see what happens to a man, a person, when Christ gets a hold of them. You see the drama of redemption acted out in a stage, in a profile, in a spectacle you can see. Ministers, this is the downside of this. We have no private life. If you have marital problems, we live with it. If I have marital problems, the session talks to me about it. If my children don't behave in college, and Elliot knew them, and they didn't, then people let me know about it. Why? Because they're being unkind? No. Some may be, but not most of them. What they want to see in the minister, if I can be crass, is that grace works. That God's promises are true. That all these lofty things he says about a man loving his wife as Christ loves the church and a wife submitting to husband as Lord, and the children honoring their parents, and tithing in its benefits, and faithfulness in its fruits. They want to see that that works. It's a great concept on a piece of paper, on the pages of a holy book, even one that's infallible. But can we see examples where the grace of God really does what the Bible says it will do? And the answer is yes. Yes, in your pastors. On this theater of grace, The world is watching with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul will say many times, look at me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Examine us. Because he wants them to see, not himself, but the main player in his life who is Jesus Christ and the wonderful things God does with the chief of sinners. For Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul said, among whom I am the foremost of all. And I am a theater on the wall in which this grace brings out this great storyline and leads to a happy ending where they truly do live happily ever after with God in heaven. We are theaters of grace. Fourthly, we are morons. (laughs) Now, you knew that to be true. Because verse 10 says that. Verse 10 says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. There's a little bit of sarcasm here. We are moros, M-O-R-O-S, from where we get the word moron. It means fool or imbecile. But you are sophos, from where we get the word sophisticated. That this may be the thing we don't like the minister to be. We like the fact that he's a faithful servant, a trusty steward, a theater of grace. But when the world laughs at him, because he believes these silly things, because he tries to be holy, because he has eccentric views, which are really not eccentric at all. They are, according to the Bible, the mind of Christ. When they laugh at him, that's when we become embarrassed. So Paul would say to Timothy, do not become embarrassed. Do not become ashamed of the gospel or of me who suffer for it. There are some things that Andy's going to believe and teach, that Chip holds to, that Elliot is a proponent of, that quite frankly, in the world's eyes, are just plain stupid. Just dumb. As we would say in Ohio, dog dumb. Like evolution isn't true, but creation is. That men are to be the spiritual leaders of the relationship not women. 
that a marriage between a man and a woman is the only true marriage that God recognizes. That truth is worth dying for. That some things never change. And Paul said, because we believe these things, the Greek culture says how unsophisticated, how embarrassingly imbecilic, but that's what we are. We are fools for Jesus Christ. You know, my dad used to tell me, I used to ask him, Dad, how, how will I know that I'm in love with a girl enough to ask her to get married? This is what he said. When you truly fall in love, that woman will make a fool of you. I did the silliest things to win Jane's hand. We have this old stained glass window that hangs over my kitchen uh, sink, and it's, got, it's, it's out of an old uh, historic building that they tore down in Memphis. It's got, and the address was 7905. And I tell my grand, I said, you know, grandkids, what that, what that number is? They said, no, Pample. I said, that's the number of times I asked Jane to marry me before she said yes. 7,905. I did the most ridiculous things. I wasted so much money on trying to get that girl to go out with me and try to impress her. But you know what? It was worth every single self-effacing moronic moment because I was and am still madly in love with her. I'm still making a fool of myself for her and for Jesus Christ and his church, the three great loves of my life. That's what ministers are like, fools for Christ. And finally, he says, they are the cast off of society. In verse 13, he says, we have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. These two words are powerful words. The one means scum. It's what they, they swept off the streets when the street cleaners would come by in first century Rome. Perikapharma. The other, peripseme, was what they scraped off the plates and gave to the pigs or the dogs. Garbage. Paul says we are scum in the streets, Garbage to be fed to the beasts. Charles Hall said he's not being melodramatic here. That in Greek culture and language, these two words were used for the lowest of the classes of society. Who when things went wrong in the city or in the country, and they needed a human sacrifice to please the gods, they picked these kinds of people. People who didn't count. Who wouldn't be missed the off-scourings, the scum of humanity, they sacrifice to appease the gods. Paul says, we are living in human sacrifice. Most commentators believe that Paul has in mind his future martyrdom. We will be sacrificed on the altar of Rome to appease gods who don't exist. But our life is a drink offering, he says in another place, being poured out for the one true God who does exist. There's something noble about dying for something that is larger than life and greater than self, lasting forever. It's one thing to live for the gospel as a minister. It's another thing to die for it, to expend your last ounce of life in bringing people to know Jesus Christ. And for that reason, another reason, 
we hold our ministers in great affection. David Wells, in a book called No Place for Truth, talked about what ministers really are. He called them a new order of sacred fools. Here's what he said. I share this with you and then I'm done. He said in the medieval world, things were highly stratified. And a person had permission to speak laterally to people in his strata of society or down to those beneath him, but never above. And of course, at the top of this chain of being was the king. The king could say anything to anybody. And certainly to all the people who were below him. But people way down the pecking order couldn't say much at all. But there was one exception. The court jester, called literally in the medieval world the king's fool. He could say anything to anybody as long as he said it with humor. He can even laugh at the king and say, what a stupid decision you've made. And the king kept him on the payroll for that reason. That's what preacher boys are, the king's fools. We have the power and the privilege, and we have the prerogative to say to anybody in the world, to President Obama, down to the guy who'll drive the garbage truck by the road in the morning, whatever we need to say, pointing out the silliness and folly, the tragedy of a life without Jesus Christ, critiquing what is right and wrong, even if they don't agree, extolling the king, even when it's socially unacceptable to do so. We are God's order of sacred fools. And happy is the country that has an order of them. Blessed is the church that has a sacred fool for Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this great privilege, this happy occasion of installing another minister of Jesus Christ to this church and to this flock in this sacred order of fools. We commend the rest of our service to that end and pray it would both honor you and bless your people. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.